All right, welcome back to another episode of the Laravel Podcast. I'm one of your hosts, Matt Stauffer. And guys, can you introduce yourselves? I am Jeffrey Way. And I'm Taylor Otwell. Uh, we're recording five days before Christmas, I think, if I'm good at math, which I'm not, so it's probably four, but something like that. And so we're all getting everything wrapped up for the end of the year. Laravel 5.4 development is happening. We're going to be talking about that a little bit. And um, a lot of people around here are going to be taken off for the next couple of weeks. So we wanted to see if we can sneak one in so that when you're driving long ways to see your family or trying to hide from your family because they're fighting about politics, whatever else, you have something fun to listen to. So, <laughs> hey, happy Hanukkah, happy Kwanzaa. Merry Christmas, whatever else it is. Um, hope you're not hiding in a closet from your family, but if you are, um, hey, we're here for you. So the first thing we're going to cover is Level 5.4. So we've got a tentative release date and a couple big features that are coming out. So first of all, Taylor, could you tell us about what the timeline is? It seems like you're solidifying the timeline for release dates. You mentioned something about that. Could you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, so I'm kind of tweaking the release dates a little bit to line up better uh, with Laravel events, Laracon specifically. Um, so usually we would have a release in November, but five dot, um, what is it? Five dot three, well, it had already just come out just a few months ago. So it felt like really soon to do another release. So it was kind of a convenient time to shoot for January. And then six months after that would be July, which is when Laracon is. So that makes it line up a lot better. Whereas like this year, Laracon being in July, we were supposed to do a release in May, but I really wanted to wait till Laracon to... Um, show it off. So I kind of delayed the release a few months. So this will line up a lot better. And right now I'm just reading through every class in Laravel, which I used to do quite a bit in the old days, like Laravel 2 or Laravel 3. Um, so just reading through every class, making sure everything's really readable, really understandable. Um, I'm just kind of cleaning things up as I go. And I'm kind of saving the database component for last since I know that will be sort of the biggest one um, yeah, to work through. But I'm pretty much, I think I have queue, routing, and database left, which are kind of the three biggest, I feel like, components. So um, those will probably take a few weeks to read through all of those um, just by themselves. That's one of my favorite things, like when you're working on a package or something, and you're basically done with it, and you're now at the point where you just get to go file by file, and then you just kind of do the the scan thing, or you start scanning it and... If one line is too long, you're like, ah, let's 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 thin that out, or you make sure that the doc block is perfect and and everything just looks as clean and simple and common sense as possible. It, it's by far my favorite part of the process, and I end up doing it over and over, probably too much, but I, I do love that part, kind of getting it ready for for everybody else. And this isn't a direct correlation, but it's kind of in the same vein of like in in the red green refactor world. Even when we start doing TDD, I feel like. The number of times we do red and green and then never refactor is just ridiculous. Like, how often do we just not give ourselves the space and time to go back after the thing is done and working and make it, you know, enjoyable and pleasant and clean and clear and get rid of the cruft? Like, one of the things that I like doing is every time I push up a pull request anywhere, before I even tag anybody in it, I go through the whole GitHub preview, all the changes in your pull request and just read it. Because it's like a good time to be like, oh, that, you know, I left that comment in there or I left that completely useless method or that just doesn't read well. So I, I totally agree on that. Yeah. Or there's a var dump in here. It's right. amazing. Like when PRs come in, like my, my biggest GitHub pet peeve by far is when somebody submits a PR and there's no description whatsoever. Like mm -hmm. they'll write a, a four word subject. And it's hard for some of these packages we maintain because it very well could be something that you don't really use that much anymore or or you haven't updated it in a few months. So when somebody who's like knee deep into this PR is working on it, everything makes sense. But for you, it's like, I haven't seen this in two months. You got to you gotta yep. treat me like a three-year-old, you know, like tell me exactly what the problem is, how you're fixing it, 
blah, blah, blah. But the blank descriptions drive me nuts. Pro tip, um, uh, we've said often in on the, the podcast that uh, the main job you should do is make it easy for the pull, re- as easy for the pull request reviewer as possible. And one of the things that I've learned is that that applies a lot of other ways as, as well. Um, so just like a life tip here. When I want something from a client, um, there's a couple of particular clients that come to mind, but when I want something from them, I want to make it as easy as possible for them to give that to me. So one of the things I do is like if I need a, a specific decision made that's extremely complicated or something like that, just like I would with a pull request, I write this kind of complex email and at the end I summarize it and I say, in summary, here are the things I need from you, a decision between A, B, and C. I would recommend B because xyz but if you choose a here's the other actions i needed to take thank you and so like these little like tldrs like that's the thing i did in my book at the end of every chapter there's a too long didn't read because i'm like i want we want to make sure things are, are extremely clear and extremely understandable and of course give as much details as necessary but like the easier you make it on someone to give you what you want you know help me help you help me help you totally i mean because you have to be practical it's like most people will scan the chapter, you know, so it's really helpful. You had a good uh, five-minute geek show the other day, kind of about that very thing with, with uh, freelancers. Uh, folks oh, yeah. should definitely check that out. Thanks. I'll link it in the show notes. Um, so, okay, so a couple of 5.4 um, features are out, and, and a lot of 5.4 seems to be, this. I feel like we say this on every release, but there's a lot of little incremental things, and there's a lot of little updates, and you're going through code-style stuff, but we got a couple of big features. So the biggest and most exciting at the moment is because just yesterday, as of the recording of this podcast, um, you two were going back and forth a little bit about Mix. So tell us about Mix, guys. Um, Mix is the the next version of Laravel Elixir. So this is an attempt to fix some of the issues I've had with with Laravel Elixir. Uh, it's really hard when you build these kinds of tools because they're they're made to serve a specific purpose, and then they work perfectly for that. But um, I think something that happens to all projects is that folks will want to use them in a way that they weren't necessarily intended for. So they want to configure it in this way, or they want to add this option, or they want to add the ability to compile this or that. And so there's always, it's always this like, um, this tug of war thing where somebody wants to extend it to allow for that. But every time you extend the, the tool, it gets a little more complicated and a little more. And it's like you're constantly fighting this urge to keep it simple versus wanting to make uh, people happy who file these GitHub issues. Um, so that was an issue with Laravel Elixir where like for what it did, it worked perfectly, but if you wanted to configure it more or, or change it, it got a little more complicated. You'd have to research a plugin or, you know, it just got a little tricky. So what Laravel Mix is, it's basically Laravel Elixir built entirely on Webpack versus Gulp. Uh, and Gulp is great. I, I don't really have any complaints at all about Gulp other than the fact that it's once again, it's really good for building little gulp tasks where you can do everything in line and, and you're good to go. But once you want to change it or expand it or or add more transformations, you find yourself pulling in packages over and over. Like for Browserify alone, if you're doing that, you end up pulling in like nine different gulp packages and transformers just to get everything to work. And it becomes incredibly complex, which is which is tough because that's the opposite of what gulp was intended for. But it ends up evolving to these monstrosities. Um, but what it, it turns out that Webpack can do all of that. It's just really complicated to learn. Like the, the common joke with everyone is you have no idea what it is. Like what does it even do? Is it a, a, a JavaScript bundler? Is it, does it compile SAS? Is it a task runner? It's, and the answer is like it's, it's kind of everything. It can do everything. Um, but anyways, as I was experimenting with it, I realized 
that it can do almost all of the stuff that Laravel Elixir does. So maybe I could rewrite it where Laravel Elixir just kind of wraps it up, it sets some configuration, and then the Webpack config file can take care of the rest, and it drastically reduces the the size of the project as a whole. Uh, but anyways, we renamed it to Mix only because if we switch to Webpack, then all of the the, the Gulp plugins that people created for Elixir, well, they're not compatible, right? So it gets a little tricky. And then also there, there's the natural overlap with, with Elixir itself. So Laravel Elixir is not actual Elixir. Anyway, so we talked to, all of us talked for a long time about n- new names. It's kind of the fun part is just brainstorming and, and researching synonyms and all of that. Uh, and we decided to stick with Laravel Mix. I assume this will be available right around Laravel 5.4. Uh, it's much faster. It's cleaner. Uh, I think people will really like it. I like it. And and Taylor, you're getting a whole set of logos for all the components. So we've, we've seen a preview of what that logo looks like. So I'm going to put a link up to that tweet that you did there. Yeah, all um, the logos so, look real good. Yeah, it's slick. Um, so, the, so Mix is the new version of Elixir. Elixir is a Gulp-based tool that will be probably kind of sunsetted slash deprecated with is it going to be just alongside with 5.4? Yep. Yep. And I, w- I will say, like, the the version of Laravel Elixir folks are using, the syntax that you will use in your Gulp file, it's almost identical to what you will use uh, with Laravel Mix. So don't feel like you have to learn something entirely new. Um, if you want to learn Webpack, you can. But if you don't, then it will be almost identical for you. Um, and for those who, who want to stick with the Gulp version, I'll still maintain that and keep track of it. So um, nothing to worry about there at all but this will be a lot better cool so in in practical terms the majority of us won't see much of a, a noticeable difference other than there might be a simpler dependency tree um uh there'll probably be some speed performances but if you end up wanting to do webpack stuff there's a lot more options available to you when this comes out right actually i i will say that there there are some cool things if i can just stretch this out a little please, further please um there are some things like when you're bundling up ecmascript 2015 where it gets tricky where like let's say you're pulling in Vue or jQuery or, or Lodash and stuff like that, and you bundle all of that together with your application code, and then that's what you serve to the browser, uh, which is what most people do. But then that also means like if you ever change a line or two of your application code, you bust the cache, right? So it's like, oh, you just changed a method name caller or whatever. You compile that down, you push it to production, but now you have to bust the cache. And all of your vendor library code, that all gets busted too. So people have to re-download that. Uh, one thing you can do with this version of um, Laravel Mix and through Webpack, you can do it. Um, you can call mix.extract, and you give it an array of vendor libraries that you want to extract into their own file. So I could call mix.extract and then provide an array of view, comma, jQuery, comma, X, you know? And when I compile it down, I'm now going to have one file with my application code, but I'm also going to have another one called vendor.js. And, and the benefit to this is, uh, yes, in your HTML, you'll have an extra X- HTTP request at the bottom where you import that script. But when you do change your application code, it's not going to affect those vendor libraries, which are usually pretty big. So you can, you can cache those long term, like as long as you possibly want. And when you do occasionally change your application JavaScript, that will bust, but it will not affect the vendor libraries. So that's like a huge win. Uh, I know it sounds complicated, but it's really not. And um, it, it's really great for caching. 
it's always seemed pretty complicated to me and, and people are talking about was it what are branch shaking or tree shaking or whatever but knowing that you're going to give us a, a feature to kind of start taking advantage of those things is super exciting because it's so it's now not just exact same syntax but we're now starting to get some of that same benefit of a easier interface in term in front of useful but complicated features like uh uh, what is it? Is it what do they call it? Is it tree shaking? Well, tree shaking, shaking is where like if you import Lodash, but you only lo but you only use like one or two methods, it can basically if you imagine shaking a tree, you'll get rid of all of the library code that you didn't use. So it makes your yeah. file size smaller. And this isn't that, but this th I feel like this splitting. is like one yeah. step on the way towards that, which is starting to not just import one massive, you know, one meg file all the time in a, the exact same structure, right? It's like starting to get some of the webpack promise of extracting those uh, out from each other a little bit yeah yeah exactly it's, it's very very cool all right next five four feature markdown mail so this has been covered a little bit more um there's a laravel news uh post about it that we'll link in the show notes um but taylor could you give us kind of the pitch and the vision behind markdown mail yeah so markdown mail is kind of inspired by uh the notification stuff in laravel and uh, with mail notifications that were introduced in Laravel 5.3, you have this really convenient syntax for building out little transactional email notifications and having a nice responsive template uh, for them. But sometimes you wanted to, for me at least, I wanted kind of a more comfortable writing environment to write those emails or I wanted to sort of have quite a bit of content that would feel really weird to put like in that class. It would be a lot of text uh, stuck in that method. And... Um, sometimes you just want to send a mailable, you know, just a regular email, but still use, have like a nice starting point for your template without having to write all of the inline CSS or any of that. Um, so I kind of brainstormed this around with Adam Wathen a little bit, and I kind of came up with the idea that if we use Markdown, we would be able to have a nice syntax for writing emails, but we could also um, generate a plain text version of the email from that same syntax since Markdown is really meant to be human readable. Um, and then we kind of kind of combined that with the new components and slots feature of Laravel 5.4, which I think is sort of, I hope it's not like vastly underappreciated for how big of a deal it really is and how many doors it opens up to, um, to do things like this where I was able to build components in these uh, for these emails. So like a component for a button, for example, for these markdown emails or a component for a table. And those components can, can structure, you know, that in a way it makes sense for the HTML version of the email. Okay, so basically what it lets you do is um, you can do PHP artisan make mail, um, whatever class name, and then dash dash markdown equals and then give it like a template and it will stub out this markdown template. And you just write your email in the Markdown template, but when you send it, it will be this nice, well-styled, responsive email. Um, so it's a much more enjoyable way to write emails, especially if you're not, if your emails are not, you know, it's not really meant for marketing emails. You know what I mean? It's more for transactional emails. It's not for emails you're going to send through like Campaign Monitor or something like that. Um, but for most email needs, for most applications, it's going to be welcome relief, I think, um, to writing emails. And another cool feature of it is um, you can add your own components uh, to the email. So you can vendor publish out all the components. Um, so you vendor publish and it contains a HTML folder and a markdown folder. And you can customize the components on each side or even add your own components. And it also has this concept of themes where uh, by default, when you export it, there's a theme folder 
um, that just has a default.css file. And that file gets automatically, those styles are inlined into your HTML email. So you don't have to inline the styles for you uh, or manually. So for people that aren't aware, when you send emails for them to work on all email clients, a lot of times the styles have to be actually inline on the HTML elements. You can't just keep them up in a header block of styles or whatever. And doing that, of course, is very painful. Um, so this does it all automatically using a CSS inliner package. And um, yeah, it's really nice. So you can write your own theme or customize the CSS that ships with the framework and it will just be inlined into your HTML emails for you. Um, so I've been I've been uh, playing with it, you know, as I've been building Laravel 5.4. And I think it's going to be one of the most useful new features um, in the framework. Yeah, it's cool. I was going to ask you, how are you how are you able to inline that that theme code? So that's cool. There's a library. Honestly, anyone who's ever had to prepare these like um, email templates or for, for transactional emails, it's hugely annoying dealing with all the different email clients. And like you said, having to inline all the CSS, you end up with this with this template that looks like it's from like 1997 or something. So it's it's pretty incredible what, what you can do with this. I'm excited to try it out. I think that um, both Markdown Mail and the slots and um, components are features where you hear what it is and you say, okay, I get it, but I don't understand why it's compelling. Um, I think that there's going to be a little bit of a burden on us to to really kind of show all the ways that it's exciting. But I think also there's just going to be a sense of the first time you need to use it and you use it and it's as simple as it is, you're going to go, oh, right. Because like sometimes you're like, well, I'm perfectly happy with this. And like, well, either you have never or you have blocked out or you've come up with clever ways around the pain points that it's designed to address. And so I, even for me at times, I'm like, I remember yesterday I thought deeply about it and thought this really compelling reason why slots and components are the most brilliant thing of all time. And now I look at it and I'm like, why do I need them? So I, it's interesting that it's, I feel like in the same way that OOP and um, TDD were like, it took my, I knew the concepts of them, but it took a little while for my brain to internalize like how to think that way. Not to say these are as, as significant as those, but um, I think that these both are things that are going to take a little bit of like mental model, model reworking um, in order to really kind of see how we use them best. Yeah, components and slots are one feature I feel like I have a hard time figuring out how Laravel went this long without them because they make so many things possible. Like this markdown email thing would be totally impossible without components and slots. You just couldn't write the feature, honestly, um, in the same way that it's written here. Um, so I think they're they're really cool, especially for like modals, alerts, components like that. Um, it really saves a lot of boilerplate code. All right. So we've got another feature in the list. So the Laravel official account on the 19th of this month uh, tweeted out a logo for something that has not been explained yet. And it says Laravel Dusk. Taylor, do you have anything to tell us about this? Yeah. So Dusk is a testing tool um, that I've been working on. And um, so in Laravel 5.3, there is ways to interact with your application where you can say in your tests, something like click link or type this into this input field and you can post the form and check out the response and all that. I basically rewrote a lot of the testing stuff in Laravel 5.4 to make a lot more sense in my opinion. Um, and one of the downfalls of that approach in Laravel 5.3 is it's using Symfony Browser Kit, which is not going to work at all for applications that use JavaScript, which is almost every application nowadays um, that many people are building. Um, because 
you know, it's not going to all your Ajax calls and all that. Like if you have an Ajax call when the page loads, that's not going to work in the Laravel 5.3 testing stuff. It's just not going to run. Um, so Dusk is my attempt. Uh, one, I extracted out all of that page interaction stuff from the framework itself into this Dusk package and rewrote the entire thing um, to be built off of Chrome driver, which is standalone, uh, which is kind of a Selenium compatible API. And it uses Facebook's web driver um, SDK library to do all the interaction with that. So it, it really will work with any Selenium um, browser, but it ships with this Chrome driver support. And the benefit of that is one, I feel like a lot of developers use Chrome Two, it doesn't require you to install JDK or Selenium um, on your machine at all. So you don't have to install Java and it's really fast. It's a lot faster than using the typical Chrome or Firefox approach with Selenium. Um, it's, it's even, it's faster than Phantom JS even on my machine. Um, so it's, it's, it's really, really nice because when you install the package and you make a test, I can just run PHP unit. I don't have to start a Selenium server. I don't have to install a bunch of junk. It just works perfectly out of the box. And I've built in um, some cool features that aren't really in other PHP testing frameworks that you'll see when it's released. But um, it has a lot of cool helpers for, you know, when you when you're testing this kind of application with JavaScript, it's different than testing with like the browser kit because you might have to wait for something to finish. Um, so there's cool helpers, you know, for waiting for some condition to be true in your JavaScript or waiting for this um, CSS selector to be available and then fire this closure or whatever. And lots of really nice, clean syntax that it makes it feel a lot more natural than like sleeping and pausing all over the place, waiting for stuff to appear. Um, so I think it's really going to be a popular tool um, in the ecosystem if you need to do any kind of end-to-end browser testing with JavaScript um, enabled applications. And so what I what I did with the old stuff is I extracted that out into a package called, um, I think it's under Laravel slash browser kit testing. So when you're upgrading to 5.4, you can pull in that package and just change one line of code in your um, test, your base uh, test class, and all your tests will still work on 5.4 using the exact same t- syntax. Um, so that's kind of the rundown of, of Dusk. And like I said, it works with any um, Selenium uh, type of setup. Um, even It even works like on Sauce Labs um, if you're running Selenium tests on the cloud or anything like that. But by default, it uses the Chrome driver thing, which I think is really key to making it really approachable and usable out of the box because setting up Selenium and starting the server every time is really clunky and just a no-go in my opinion. And no, it's kind of a nightmare. And yet, like I always would end up having to create a little notes file to remind myself how to get everything up and running because it was so complicated. Yeah. It's like, okay, download Selenium and then where did I store that? And then you run java-jar and then you, you know, it's like you have to remind yourself, uh, which is awful. And then the worst thing about Selenium is that um, as useful as it is, you, you end up with these these false positives or it'll fail when it should pass. And like you said, it's because maybe you have something where you click on a button and it opens a modal and then you want to click uh, OK on the modal. Well, like if it goes too fast, then it tries to click OK before the modal is opened and the test fails, even though everything works. Right. So you end up having to do all these things like, like you said, like you set kind of an interval and is it available now? Is it available now? Is it available now? And it just becomes this huge nightmare to deal with where so many times the test will fail and then you go and try it out in the browser and it works. So uh, I'm excited if, if you've solved all this. Yeah, it abstracts all that away, really. So where you're not 
really managing any of those intervals yourself. Um, it's all kind of managed behind the scenes. And other cool features are um, um, it has page objects, which are not, I don't think those are in other PHP testing tools, but they're in uh, tools like Nightwatch.js. And then also, you know, it's automatically configured to save screenshots of your, te- of your test failures to uh, a screenshots directory in your test directory. So nice. if your test fails, you get a screenshot of what the page looked like when it failed. So you can kind of see, oh, okay, I can see what went wrong here or whatever. Because the tests move pretty fast. I mean, end-to-end testing, of course, is slower than um, unit testing by a good bit, but the tests still move really fast. So it's hard to see exactly what's happening on the page sometimes uh, when it's clicking around so fast. Um, so I, I don't know if I entirely followed the one piece. So let's say I'm doing a test where I'm not testing any JavaScript at all. Um, you said you pulled the browser kit testing out, but that's not what, what, so like visit and call and all that stuff that's still living in there as it is because that's not being affected, right? Yeah, that's in the browser kit testing package. Oh, that's, that is. Okay, yeah. so that's being pulled out. Yeah, it's in the browser kit testing package. Okay, so is if I'm going to do a test and I want to do visit or I want to call, I want to test APIs and stuff like that, in 5.4, it's going to be running through Dusk and it will be spinning up this actual kind of Chrome instance to do it. Is it if I'm not doing any JavaScript stuff, am I going to lose speed, or is it so fast that it's actually going to be just as fast? If as If you're that just was? testing like an API, you're just going to want to use um, this Git, this post, this put in Laravel core, which is still in the core, and okay. that's going to give you back a response where you can assert on the JSON or whatever you want to do there. Um, so you wouldn't use it for that kind of testing. You would use it for any kind of real front end interaction testing. So. So this visit no longer is a proxy down to this call. It's now a separate yeah, set of things. Yeah, there is no this visit in the core of Laravel. There's there's only git post put delete. And I think there is like a handle or a call where you can just pass it a request instance. And that actually returns a response. You know, in previous versions of Laravel testing, the response set like on the test class as this kind of state that was an instant state and you could do like this response, which was always really strange to me. Like when I call this post, I just want to get, when I call this post, I just want to get the response. And in Laravel 5.4, I actually assert right off the response. So I say response equals this post URL, whatever parameters I want to pass. And then I say response assert has JSON or whatever, or response has header. Like I that response object is decorated. It's actually a test response object that's decorating the real response that lets you have this fluent assert syntax right off the response. Um, So it feels really good. Um, It has most of the same uh, JSON and header and status and uh, session and even like assert assert that the view has this variable. All that stuff is there. But if you want to actually like click buttons and click links and type in forms, you're going to use Dusk or pull in the browser kit uh, legacy package if you're not using any JavaScript at all in your application, I guess. Yeah, I think that was my fault. Storing response on the the test class, I think my thinking was I wanted to be able to say like this arrow visit and then see something. Yeah. But then I also wanted to continue chaining PHP unit assertions. Right. So you could say like C foobar and then arrow assert equals blah, blah, blah. But um, I do agree. It's kind of funky that you don't get the response just immediately back when you call that. So uh, yeah, I think that was a good decision for you. I'm excited to try it out. I really am. Yeah, I really like it. I spent a lot of time, honestly, many weeks uh, writing it and perfecting it. Originally, I wrote the whole tool in JavaScript, basically. I wrote it, and that's why it's called Dusk, because it it was built on top of Nightwatch.js. 
And Nightwatch JS, I don't want to like dog it, but it's, it's, I feel like it's a little outdated. Um, you can't use new JavaScript syntax uh, when you do it. You're always kind of, it's sort of hard to extend with custom exertions and custom commands, um, which I found out. I wrote, I wrote a lot of them, but they was kind of painful to do. And you're always kind of fighting the fact that you want to run some PHP logic before your test or you want to set up your database in some way. And you're always kind of fighting that. So that's when I kind of scrapped it and rewrote the whole thing in PHP using um, Facebook's WebDriver library. Oh, yeah. On that note, explain that to me. So I assume you call like an open method if you want to actually open Chrome and, and perform something. Is that right? Yeah, you do. I forget what the method's called. I haven't looked at it in a week or two, but I think it's you just call this browser and it gives okay. you a browser and you pass you pass a closure into that and that gives you a browser instance and then you can do you know browser visit url or it has a lot of helper methods too that are sort of laravel specific so you can do like browser login as and give it a user instance and that will log you in and then you can just go straight to an authenticated url without having to go through your whole login screen every time you know for every test because that would be that would just be kind of time consuming so i can log in as a user and then click and type and do whatever, um, even drag and drop stuff. So yeah, that's kind of how it works. You can open and you can open up multiple browser windows per test, right? So if you if you had one browser window opened up and you were testing some kind of like socket integration, I could open up one window, type something in a field, open up another window, and click the button on the first window and make sure that some text appeared in the second window. If oh, that's was, crazy. If I was testing out stuff like that. So, yeah, so you can open as many browser instances as you want um, for any given test. How do you deal with with the environment that it's running? One thing I've always had trouble with for acceptance testing is you open the browser, but <clears throat> excuse me, you don't want it to use maybe your local database. Maybe you want it to use like a special database yeah. and you have to figure out how to set the the environment. That was a little tricky. So how I handled that was you have a .env.dusk file in the root of your project and you define whatever environment you want to have for your Dusk test in that file. And what it does is you don't actually run your Dusk test through PHP unit directly. You call this artisan Dusk command, which proxies down into PHP unit and you can pass it all the same options as PHP unit. So groups or whatever. But what it does is actually when you call that command, it backs up your .env and moves .env.dusk to be the environment that's being used. Okay. And then it runs all your Dusk tests and they will run in that environment. Um, and then once all your Dusk tests are finished, it, it, moves, it, your, yeah, it moves your real .env back into place and it's like nothing ever happened really. So yeah, but yeah, if you didn't have that, it would be pretty painful. So that lets you define your whole Dusk environment custom however you want. Okay, yeah, that's pretty seamless. I like that. So this will be part of 5.4? Yep, this will release with 5.4 and, um, you know, still got to write all the docs and stuff on it. So hopefully I get all that done by January. This is sort of like the least rushed release I feel like I've had in a while where I don't feel super pressured to get anything out there, like until I feel like it's ready, because I feel like 5.3 is nice and still feels pretty new, to be honest. So I'm just kind of taking my time and getting everything right. And, you know, I don't want to rush anything out there so yeah hopefully we get it done in january and that will uh, be available when the rest of the framework's released pretty sweet keeps getting better and better 
Yeah, and I agree. Five three feels new. It, it's I was kind of surprised to think about. Well, it's December. If if we're releasing something in January, we're talking about a pretty quick turnaround on that. Um, but yeah, it, I like the idea of both kind of scheduling a timeline, but also giving yourself the freedom to make something, you know, good enough before you launch it. I mean, and, and who knows? Maybe one day that might be a not necessarily in this circumstance. But you know what? I was targeting the next one, and I might push it one down the road. You know, the dusk may end up having to end up in five five or something like that, right? Just to say, well. We'll, we'll stick to the schedule, but this thing is just not ready, and I'm not going to push it out when it's not ready or whatever. So yeah, five point three released the last week of August. So I mean, we basically call it early September. You know, yeah. So when, it's only been a couple months. Yeah, not very long. But dusk dusk is totally finished. Um, I don't like leaving stuff in sort of an unfinished state and not visiting it. So I made sure it was totally finished and before I moved on to uh, other things. But it's just a matter of documenting it up. But I think it will be. I think it'll be big. I mean, I think a lot of people will like it and it really makes it super approachable to write those kind of tests. I'm excited. I'm looking forward to trying it out. Um, all right, so that's it for our five, four features that we're going to cover for today. Um, we're already pretty far down to the episode, so we're just going to do a couple of promotional bits and then talk about a few updates um, elsewhere in the Laravel ecosystem. So real quick, we have three promotional things we want to talk about. Um, Jeffrey, we've mentioned casually that you're covering Vue, um, but I want to kind of make a bigger point of the fact that you are you have a direct and it's free, right? Vue series with its own domain name and everything. So tell us about Viewcasts. Yeah, V-U-E-C-A-S-T-S dot com. Uh, it's it's just the the big thing I'm working on at Laracast right now. Like uh, for, for a while now, I think we've all kind of agreed that Vue is just this incredible thing uh, that makes JavaScript somewhat bearable compared to um, some of the other choices you have. Um, so obviously, one of the things to make it bigger and bigger is obviously the the education part. So um, I made Viewcast.com for Laracast. It's a free series. It'll be free to anyone forever. You don't even have to sign in or, or create an account to access it. Um, and, and my goal is just to cover every step of it down to what is what is data binding? What is that all the way up to you know, here's how you're going to use it in Laravel. Here's how you use it with Webpack. Here's how you you work with Ajax. You know, all of the stuff that anyone would want to know, kind of in a step by step fashion. That's entirely free uh, to everyone in the world. So, hopefully, you know, it'll help make Vue bigger. That's one of the things I like to do for Laracast is like the 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 fundamental type content for for whatever the the library or the tool is. I like to make free. Um, it's good for my business, but I think it's also good just for for open source to to give people a a good place to to learn uh, everything that's new without having to pay. Because um, sometimes you're still just testing it out. You know, you're like, what is this thing? Is this something I even want to care about? So maybe it gets you excited. And then you can learn more. And, and hopefully, from a business perspective, you might want to sign up after that. But I wouldn't expect it or require it. I think it's just good to have a resource for folks to go to to say, because uh, for a while people are saying, hey, you know, you you did all those learning view out loud on Twitch, but that's not a very good resource to actually teach someone. And I'm like, yes, no, because you can see me making all the mistakes. And they said, so where do I go to learn view from the beginning? And I, I don't know if I ever had an answer prior to this. So it's nice to just be able to say, no, you go to viewcast.com and you're going to learn it all. It's going to be free, regardless of whether you're a Laravel developer or anything else, just go there and it's a good place to learn it. So Yeah. And I think it's one of those things like you have to go to all of these resources. So like Viewcast is great, but also like what what you've done, it's really cool to just watch somebody actually working and you're not seeing edits. You're not seeing the best version of what they can do, like, like kind of what I do at Laracast. You're just seeing in real life somebody hitting a roadblock, and then you have to spend five minutes reading documentation to figure out how to do mm. something. I think that's really beneficial. Um, or, or like what you do with 
your blog. Like you have the Laravel articles and what's new in 5.3, but then you also have the book that people can buy. So I think it's good to kind of have both both things mm-hmm. there for people. Yeah, we're just trying to make sure y'all learn any way possible. And uh, with those Twitch sessions, thanks for the kind words. It's it's definitely just a, everybody in the world getting to watch me make a total fool of myself and then feeling better about themselves because the, the number one piece of, yeah, the number of feedback I get is, oh, I thought I was the only person who made all those stupid mistakes that you made in your Twitch <laughs> Twitch stream. And I'm like, nope, nope, I make them too all, all the time. Yep. So tell us about your book. Well, thanks. Nice segue there. Um, so my book, Laravel Up and Running, which is laravelupandrunning.com, um, finally is released in every format. It's been in a pre-order ebook for a while. Um, and uh, so people have been kind of reading the early versions before the editors got to it. But it is in final ebook form and it is shipping from Amazon and from O'Reilly um, all around the world. And people are starting to post pictures of getting the physical book. And I got my physical book, my first one, I think a week ago, and it's sitting next to four other O'Reilly books in my bookshelf right now. Um, So it's out there. It's 480 or 450 pages. I'm trying to remember exactly which of basically trying to take someone who's never used Laravel before and teach them everything they need in order to be a capable and competent Laravel developer. And so if you read the first two chapters, you're ready to go spin up a really simple side app. And the more you read, the more you'll know. Um, but the the one tip about it is that um, I learned a ton when I, I wrote it. So even if you have been using Laravel for a while, I think it's going to be useful. And I was finding myself on a call yesterday with all my developers. And I said, I need XYZ and I want you to grow in XYZ ways and all that kind of stuff. And finally, someone was like, you just want us to go read your book, don't you? And I was like, actually, that that is exactly what I want you to do. So this is the book that I want my developers that I employ to read. So hopefully that gives you a perspective of what I was kind of going at with it. So um, yeah, LaravelUpAndRunning.com. Um, because it's published through O'Reilly, I don't get to do like big promotional sales and stuff like that like Adam does. But um, anytime something does go up in a big promotional sale, I'll tweet it out. Um, but right now, Amazon has it for like... 30% off the price that I listed it at. So uh, if you want it for cheap, that's the way to get it for sure. So so tell us how good did it feel that day you got the box in the mail oh and it had your gosh. books? Oh my gosh, I can't even. So I started writing this book July of last year and we originally were gonna publish it this summer. We were gonna finish it in March and we we're gonna publish it in July. And between 5.3 not coming out until August, and then also just the baby and all this kind of stuff, it didn't... And also, I just did not realize how much, how many uh, rounds of editing there are with a real editor. I mean, like, I'm used to people being like, yeah, I finish, I hit save on the markdown, and then I hit publish, and then there's a PDF, and then I, I tweet, and I send it out. I delivered, like, the last version sometime in July. Um, no, it must not because of 5.3. So sometime in August. And there's, like, seven rounds of edits and proofing the book, you know, and some of it is just because it's print as well. When I had that thing in my hands, it was it really felt like a closure on the last year and a half of my life in a way that I t- hadn't totally realized, but there's been something like not done, something very big. The biggest thing I've done other than like, you know, not having a baby, but like the baby arriving. Um, other than that, in the last two years of my life has been this thing. And all of a sudden, it's physically here in my hands. Oh my gosh, what a feeling. And also just having a physical product. Like how often do we as developers get a physical product? Mm-hmm. Like I, I can't say that I want to write a whole bunch more books because the... Uh, work put in to money received ratio for print books are not really there. Um, but man, it feels good to have it here in my hands. And it's really cool to be able to like show it to my family. And they're all like, we have no idea what that thing is, but good work. So it's a cool moment. No, it's asking. an incredible achievement. I mean, most people don't even come close to getting something like that done. Um, the fact that you were able to spend so long on this and get it done, it's, it's unbelievable. Very That's happy for you. I really appreciate that. And of course, thank 
you you both and everybody else who's listening for the support that I've gotten from so many people on making this happen. And my hope is that it validates Laravel in um, worlds outside of our world. People see it with an O'Reilly thing and they're able to learn it and see the, the value of it. And it helps our entire community. Like there's honestly, like one last thing to say, there's, there's moments where I said, I can't believe I'm giving up like so many secrets. And I, I don't, I'm not saying that as a promotional tool, whatever, buy the book or don't. But I was like, I can't believe I'm giving away so much of what I feel like is a unique thing that I have to offer with this level of knowledge of Laravel that I want to offer to, you know, people who are going to hire our consultancy. And all of a sudden I'm, and then it's like, wait a minute, stop. That's stupid. Like I want everybody to succeed. But there was definitely that moment where I'm like, oh, this is all my secrets. Like once you read this, you're going to know everything. I have nothing to offer. Um, but I don't know. It's just, it was still the right thing to do. So yeah, I don't know. It's a good thing though. I like it. Okay. Sorry. Thank you for asking that. We also wanted to plug um, Adam Wethen's course. He um, released the early access, so it's not done yet, um, of uh, Test Driven Laravel. Um, so if you go to course, C-O-U-R-S-E dot testdrivenlaravel.com, um, you can get early access, which means you get all the videos that exist right now, and then you'll get all the new videos that come. And because it's early access, it's on a very significant uh, discount from what it will be when the final thing suns out. So I unfortunately have been so busy with life that I haven't only been able to watch a few of them, but the majority of people at Titan are um, watching through them and I've seen all sorts of other people feedback. And, and to be honest, much of how I write tests today come from learning from Adam when we were pairing together in projects. So I would I couldn't recommend it highly enough for you to go. If you really want to get good at TDD, this is definitely the place to go. All right. Moving on, a couple other things before we're done for the day. There's been some other areas of the Laravel ecosystem that have gotten some updates. So, Taylor, you've been tweeting out um, some feature and look and possibly other things about Forge in the last couple of weeks. So tell us about what's going on, what's new about Forge, and what is this here? This is Forge API thing we're hearing about. Yeah, so one big thing that's new that no one probably noticed on the surface is it was upgraded to Laravel 5.3 um, just, just a couple of weeks ago. It had been on Laravel 4.2 for a couple of years since I originally wrote it um, when Laravel 4.2 was being developed. So we got up to 5.3, which uh, Muhammad did, and only really took him three or four days actually to do it. Um, wasn't wasn't too bad, actually. Um, but of course, the deployment's always scary when you're moving that many versions um, on such a major product. Um, so that's done, which is a big relief. And then, um, yeah, we've actually completed a Forge API and Forge SDK. Um, those are pretty much ready to go. And um, the only thing we've been waiting on is we're having the UI refreshed um, to a new design. And we didn't really want to build the API token generation UI in the old UI and then have to rebuild the whole thing in the new UI. So we're kind of waiting for the new UI so that we can put the token interface in the new UI and then ship it kind of all together. Um, if the UI, you know, takes longer than expected, we'll probably just have to um, bite the bullet and put the uh, token API stuff in the, in the old UI and then update it once we ship the new stuff. But yeah, we've got API docs, which were built using Slate. So they look uh, pretty similar to like, you know, other API docs you've seen around online, like Stripes or something like that, where you kind of have all the methods on the left side and code examples on the right side of their requests and responses and stuff. So it's a really nice setup and it really has basically every feature of Forge is exposed through the API all the way down to installing firewall rules or installing WordPress or updating your environment configuration and stuff like that is all all exposed through the API. Um, I think the only thing I've seen that you can't do through the API is actually add credentials themselves. Um, you know, so connecting a DigitalOcean account, which 
it requires an OAuth redirect and stuff we can't really implement through the UI, but everything else you can do, create servers, add sites, add SSL certificates, and of course, query all those things to kind of get um, get information about your setup. So I think it'd be a pretty cool thing. I don't even know the exactly what practical, I know there's lots of practical things that can be built on it, but I know that I'm super excited just because the ability to query the status of, and, and just the ways that Forge UI already tells you status, let alone like I want to see if there's any way to kind of check up that uh, that freaks, uh, the, or spatty or however you pronounce it, their whole status package. I feel like there's going to be some really interesting overlaps around uh, like custom dashboards around your Forge stuff. I mean, like yeah. if you're a Laravel shop, you know, like you probably got a lot of servers that you care about their their health and all that kind of stuff. So I'm super, super excited about this. Yeah, it could be some cool stuff there. You know, when you create a server on Forge, I want to notice that in some other dashboard and add it here and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I personally have not actually needed the API for Forge, but I, it has been requested, you know, over the years. Um, I wouldn't say it was, you know, people were really... Um, going crazy for one but you know certain power users have wanted one for a while so i'm glad to get it out there is that and is that the it for the major stuff that's going on for forge there's a so there's a big visual refresh and then there's the api there's no other big features right no not right now cool so what about valet i I, you have shipped it's a it was it the 2.0 the ship recently it's it's php 7 compatible what else is going on with valet yeah so valet 2.0 the biggest shift was we moved from caddy which was our web server we were using to just full nginx web server and for most for most users there's absolutely no difference it's just as fast and it's just as lightweight basically um in terms of memory and speed but um we were having some problems with caddy on a the way FPM interacts or something where you'd have to like refresh the page four or five times before you could see your code changes. And we just couldn't really ever get a good solution to that or nail that down. Um, so switching to Nginx one, is just something that there's a lot more information about how to, how to set up and, and debug issues with, because it's obviously very widely used and it's easy to set up with brew. So we can just brew it right in and, and configure it for you. So ship that out. And that, of course, works on, you know, the latest Mac Sierra and the latest PHP, which it installs PHP 7.1 by default now if you um, install Valet. So, yeah, I use it every day. It's one of my favorite tools, actually. Valet is so good. It's like I always say, like, I'm your biggest fan for, for Valet because anyone who's not using it seriously, unless you have a very specific need for um, using Vagrant, like you're on a team where everyone has to have identical. If that's not the case, you need to check out Valet. It's yeah. so, so good. I actually had to boot up Vagrant or Homestead, you know, for the first time in a couple months because I wanted to set up a Redis cluster um, last night to play with some stuff uh, in the Redis stuff in Laravel. And not that Homestead was hard to set up, but what really um, I noticed was the speed of each request was so much slower and it's not like it took like five seconds to request the page, but it seemed like it was taking like, you know, a half second or a full second where with valet, it's just like instant, you know, when you, when you click on something. So that was the biggest thing I noticed. Um, but I saw one person tweet the other day that valet was their favorite dev tool released in 2016, which I thought was hilarious because it, the whole thing started as such a joke between me and uh, Adam Wathen again, who was working on it, where, I was just blown away that he used PHP Artisan Serve for all his stuff. That's the only thing he used to test his Laravel project or to like run them locally. And I was like, don't you get really annoyed running PHP Artisan Serve all the time? And it was kind of like this joke to see if we could work around that somehow. And a lot of people ended up liking it, which is 
we still laugh about now that the whole thing was not even meant to be serious at first, but then really took off when we were like, wow, this is actually really great. I mean, it feels like magic. The ability to go to your code directory and just write Laravel new project, and then you go to project.dev in the browser and it just works. I mean, it's absurd when you think about what you would normally have to do to get that to work. Yeah, and I think another key feature of the whole thing, which was kind of unique to Valet, was the project detection thing with how we're proxying every request through one entry point. So it's like a front controller for your front controller, and we can detect what project you're running, you know, based on certain characteristics of the directory. And so, you know, you don't have to have different Nginx configurations for WordPress, for Laravel, for Craft, for Statomic, for whatever else you're running. You can just drop a WordPress in and Valet knows it's WordPress and serves it the right way, um, you know, out of the box. So to me, that's one of the more magical things about it. And one of the really the real selling points of the whole thing. So how does it do that? Is it like a file detection thing? Like if a dot art, if Artisan exists, then this is a Laravel project? Yeah, basically. So every, every, um, Every project it supports, there's a so-called driver implementation for it. So there's a Laravel driver in Valet, and it has a, I forget what the method is called, detect or something like that, where it basically does that. You just return a Boolean if it matches this project type. So for Laravel, I think we do check for Artisan. For WordPress, we check for something else like wp-admin.php or whatever. You know, every project seems to have some unique thing we can check for somewhere to know that it's that type of project, and then we know how to serve it. Cool. Very cool. Um, I'm writing a blog post right now talking about the way that view components are integrated in 5.3. I know I'm super late, but I'm finally finishing up my 5.3 series. And it was fun to say, um, well, the fastest way to, to go take a look at this is, and I, I use Lambo because, you know, I get I get both the Laravel new and then I also get it open in my browser and all this kind of stuff. But just say Laravel new project CD into the project and then you just have everything up and running for you. And I don't know why it seems so magical to just have like the Laravel installer and Valet as just, and then that's all I have to put in a blog post to tell people. But it's just, it seems really magical. Like I'd love it, no question, day-to-day work, but also just saying in a blog post, well, to do this, if you've never written Laravel ever in your life, you know, okay, you got to get Valet installed, you got to get the installer installed, but your next, every project is just Laravel new project and then open it and then you're done. And I know that this is not anything new, but it just feels magical because it is because we remember what we had to do before and we remember being young and like having to google like okay i go to my host file and then what do i do to use a custom domain like everyone remembers having to figure out how to do that so the idea that you don't even have to think about it it's just crazy and i hear from adam on twitter this is the best version yet i mean surely that can't (laughs) be the case how could the new version possibly be the best version yet learned a trick from uh mr jobs there (laughs) mm-hmm All right. Um, so before we close up for the day, are there any updates on Laracon US um, since our last podcast? Mm, it's half sold out, actually, um, before uh, the tickets have even gone on sale. So I think uh, the venue holds 500 this year, which is about 50 less people than we had last year. But it's just hard to find a venue that's bigger than last year in New York that isn't also just ridiculously prohibitively expensive or just doesn't fit our needs or whatever. So this venue we're at now, even though it's a little bit smaller, which is going to make tickets a little bit you know, harder to get for some people, I guess, um, it's just set up better than other venues I've seen. Like the tech is better. The sound is better. Um, the seating is you know, theater style and comfortable um, like we've had in the past. It had a nice lobby for, for receptions and stuff. So it was kind of, it was able to sort of approximate that Louisville uh, feel in terms of venue in New York. Um, 
but still be sort of in the ballpark of how many people we want to we want to have. So yeah, I've been doing early bird sales to people who add their email to the list. And I don't use that list to send out anything other than early bird uh, ticket notifications. So I don't send out any other marketing info on that or give it to anyone else. Um, but just as a fun way to sort of give out tickets to people and, and generate interest. So we've sold half the tickets that way. And in January, early January, kind of once Christmas has passed, I'll open it up to everyone um, just where you can just buy tickets on the site openly. There's only about 230 tickets left. Oh, gosh. It's going to sell out so fast. Yeah, because yeah, I have to leave room you know, for sponsors and speakers. So I can only sell like 460, 465 tickets because when you add in sponsors and speakers, you know, we'll be pretty close to 500. Um, so it's going to be probably a pretty full house. So I encourage people to get their tickets early you know, if you haven't once they go on sale. I'm reading about the venue and it says uh, it's right next to Hell's Kitchen. So I'm basically oh, cool. expecting to see Daredevil kind of run by. Yeah, I mean, it's uh, right in the heart of, you know, New York City. It's it's just a block or two off Times Square. Um, so you'll definitely be, you know, right in the middle of everything. Um, it's not, you know, out in the outskirts of, of town. I'm super excited about that. Okay, one last thing for today. Um, we've talked about this a little bit, but I don't think we've asked it directly this way. What is the best Nintendo game of all time? <clears throat> I'm going to go first. Since I'm always the defender of Nintendo, I don't know why. Everyone's always telling me how bad they are, and I'm always like, the, no, they're good. They're going to be good with Switch. Um, it's probably, I think old people like like us, maybe you go back to your childhood a little bit. I don't know. Like When I think right. of the Super Nintendo, I think of... Um, Zelda Link to the Past is like one of the most amazing games I've ever played. Super Metroid, one of the best games I've ever played. Um, so it kind of shows your age. My instinct is to go there only because like that's when I was a kid and you could really just devote your life to it kind of after school. Um, whereas now it's like you try to find an hour uh, after everyone goes to bed to play it and then you're exhausted yourself. So it's not quite the same thing when you're an adult. Yeah. I don't know what I don't know what the best game is, but for me, like Jeffrey, my favorite games are like the most influential games. For me, it would be Pokemon original, the original Pokemon games, and uh, Mario sixty four and Ocarina of Time would be you know the kind of the games that were my favorites um, on Nintendo as a kid. Ocarina of Time was just so like people don't remember. When that game came out, it was so mind-boggling because we went from the like the Super Nintendo era to that, and it was such a huge leap. Like we may never have that. I say that like we'll never have a leap like that again. We probably will, but it feels like we may never have a leap like that again. Because I was blown away. I remember when they first demoed Ocarina of Time. Like they showed some battle between Link and some skeleton guy, and it's like everyone was going insane. And then it got delayed. I think two years or something. Uh, but yeah, pretty magical. What about you, Matt? I, I I love that you guys are making the definition of what you played or not because I feel like it should be um, the uh, Super NES, like Super Mario World or um, l whatever the link was. It linked to the past, and I love those games. I think they're brilliant. But I didn't play them growing up because we had a Sega growing up instead of a Nintendo. So <gasps> you're I, a I, Sega guy. Wow. Well, we weren't, but <laughs> it's more that my dad um, like. He got us a video game system super, super early, and it was an Atari. And then after that, I think it was like a Sega Genesis. And it's just because like my dad was a little bit of a geek, and so he'd bring them home as like a Christmas present to the whole family because you know they were like super expensive. 
And so he'd be like, here's this thing. And we're like, this is amazing. So we didn't, we would go to like our cousin's house in, you know, far away once a year and they would have a Super NES. We're like, oh my gosh. And I remember like just sitting and playing Super Mario World for ages. So I loved it, but we just never had it. So we never got a, we never got a Nintendo system at all until we got the 64. Um, and on the 64, you know, I played a lot of GoldenEye and Perfect Dark, but it's really hard to say anything about anything other than Mario 64 and Ocarina of Time. And, and I, again, I, I'm with you. It's probably just the influence of exactly when we grew up. But man, I, you know, I've been playing, you know, uh, Wind Waker and then um, uh, Twilight Princess and Super Mario Galaxy, and they're really great games. But they just seem to be missing a little bit of like the... Um, Maybe it's just the nostalgia, but a little bit of like the timelessness of uh, 64 and Ocarina of Time. So Mario Galaxy does have that a little bit, though, where it it's like when when the game starts at the very beginning and then you're on that little circular planet, it, it's got the cool factor for sure. Yeah, I, I think that it's an underappreciated game for just how good it is. Definitely. Mm hmm. Well, guys, we're over an hour. I want to <laughs> thank you for us going this long and me having to edit it right before Christmas. So. Right. It's a present. It's our present to you, Jeffrey. I know. I mean, this is minimum two hours worth of editing. So I hope everyone appreciates this who got this far. We're just keeping you on your toes. All right. Well, I guess that's a uh, happy holidays. Merry Christmas. Happy. Han- I feel like I need a better list. Happy Hanukkah. Happy Kwanzaa. Uh, if I missed your your holiday of choice, my apologies. But happy all the things and hope you're not hiding in a closet still. But if you did, thanks for spending an hour with us and uh, we'll see you all in the new year. <laughs>